So I want to begin this morning with a, 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 a wonderful parable of sorts um, and then go from here into some other things I want to talk about as well. Uh, but I think this fits, it would be a nice carryover from what I talked about last week. So this is uh, uh, the parable of the bike. And so it says, I used to think of God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there, sort of like a president of a large company. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I really didn't know him. But later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life was rather like a bike. But it was a tandem bike. And Christ was in the back helping me to pedal. I don't know just when it was he suggested we change places, but life has not been the same since I took the back seat to Jesus, my Lord. Christ makes my life exciting. When I had control, I thought I knew the way, but it was rather boring yet predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places and at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. Even though it often looked like madness, he would say, Pedal! I was worried and anxious and asked, where are you taking me? He would laugh and didn't answer, and I would start to learn how to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I say, I'm scared, he leaned back and touched my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed. Gifts of healing, acceptance, and joy. They gave me their gifts to take on my journey, our journey, my Lord's and mine. And we were off again. He would say, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did, to the people we met. And I found that in giving back, and that in giving, I received back, and still our burden was light. I have to admit, I did not trust him at first to be in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend, take sharp, turn, sharp corners, jump to clear high rocks, Fly to short and scary passages. I am learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I am sure I just can't do it anymore, he just smiles and says, pedal. So <clears throat> how many of you can relate to that particular parable of sorts? Can you? You know, you just, 
you know, you want to be in control, but he really needs to be in control. And once he does that, then you have to kind of surrender uh, and submit to his drivership. So um, today I'm going to be picking up uh, where I left off. You'll recall that I had to leave a good bit of what I had left of my sermon uh, here on the pulpit, and so I, I couldn't finish it. Um, and I need to finish that that particular text, and I'm uh, I'm going to primarily focus on um, you know John 15 verse one of 15, where Jesus de- describes his father as the vine dresser. And you'll recall also that we talked about how that particular text, and I'll I'll go into a bit more about you know, the emphasis on how once we are connected to the vine, that we, the branches, are to produce fruit. And so, um, so we spent some time talking about that. But the problem is, and has been for quite a while now, that, um, that we're struggling with the production of fruit. That we need to be more fruity than what we are. Um, and I've recounted some of this with you. When I was growing up, I didn't start really attending church until I was around 12 years of age, but the church I started to attend, I was stunned to discover that before church they had a thing called Sunday school. So you went to Sunday school for at least an hour. And usually they had somebody there that was younger and generally really cared about the kids that they were teaching. And uh, you really, over the years, you could receive a lot of instruction about the Bible, about God. Then you went to church where you worshipped God. And, uh, and, 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 you know, you through music and prayer and hearing of the word, you, your life could be changed even more. Then they had a thing called Sunday evening service, where oftentimes you went for another hour and you received still more instruction and, you know, plugged into the fellowship more. Then they had a Wednesday evening service in the middle of the week just to give you the over the hump day, you know, so that you could, if you were sinning, you could stop or something like that, right? You know, you kind of interrupted some bad trajectories that you're in or whatever, I don't know, but they did that. And then over time, they begin to add things like small groups. Uh, and so when I was doing youth ministry in Lancaster, Ohio, I had no less than 12 small groups for my students. And I led three or four of them a week myself. And so, you know, kids and adults could get additional, you know, interaction, instruction, and things like that. Today, we have Sunday morning worship. And, I, and, and, no, and to a large degree because, you know, the, the culture has changed so very much. And the demands of work and the community and the schools have forced parents, even Christian parents, to reprioritize their values. And so sometimes it's a struggle just to get families and kids to church Sunday morning. 
And if you, you're doing really well, you can get them. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm saying I understand the pressures. We had two kids that were fully involved. We, we know. But at some point, I think you have to draw a line in the sand and say, you know, I'm just going to die on this hill. That, you know, this is going to, this, these things are going to be. You know, one of the other things I forgot to add was there. So in addition to Sunday school, church service, Sunday evening, Wednesday, small groups, there were some families who even had family devotions after every dinner. So the average person today devotes about one, maybe to two percent of their entire waking time to their faith. And these would be people who really you would consider they would they would readily consider themselves to be Christian. So what I'm saying to you is part of the reason why that's happened is because um, the lack of production of fruit in the past is producing what we're experiencing today. And so uh, the world is in desperate need of the fruit that everyone in this room is capable of producing, us and more. And the fact that the church has lost its ability to produce fruit is having dire consequences on the world in which we live. So I ran across this thoughtful, interesting article uh, written by a guy named Ed West. And I'm just going to read some of this to you because I think you'll find the comparison he makes to be really fascinating. He says, perhaps the same is true of the decline of religion in the of religion, or at least Christianity in the West. Predicted from the 18th century and with great confidence in the 19th centuries, as it turned out, Christianity outlived Bolshevism and the various other political religions that hoped to bury it, so you would be foolish to bet against the church just yet. But maybe the prophets of secularism are not wrong only premature. For the most important social trend of the 21st century so far has been the rapid decline of Christianity in the United States. Perhaps no event in the world has had such a great impact on our lives in the West, not the growth of China, the demographic explosion of Africa, nor the conflict in the Middle East, nor even the economic turmoil or disease. So he's saying, all those things were big, but nothing has impacted the West more than the decline of the Christian faith. And so he goes on to say this. For the first time in history, a recent Gallup poll found church membership among Americans has dropped to below 50%. And up to a third describe themselves as having no religion. This is a drastic change from the start of the century where the country was seen as being resistant or even impervious to the secularization which had spread across Europe. And it's having dramatic effects everywhere. The convulsions spreading across the West, convulsions from which uh, reasons of, of language Britain is extremely susceptible to, are related to the sharp de decline 
in American religion. This is part of the wider cultural revolution ongoing since the 1960s and which is comparable to the Reformation or the Christianization of Rome. Religious observance across the West has been in decline since the culture war began. But the tipping of the United States, by far the largest and most influential of Western nations, acts like the melting of an iceberg with colossal consequences for culture and politics outside of the immediate area. It is even relevant to the crisis facing the British conservative government and a party, <coughs> excuse me, the British conservative government, a party which came into existence in order to represent a church and belief system which it can no longer defend against a torrent of ideas coming across the ocean. And then this. <clears throat> Excuse me. This huge change in religious belief and atten attendance has gone in tandem with a number of social trends. So while the Christian faith has steadily lost its influence through the lack of participation, these disturbing trends have increased exponentially. So as the influence of the faith goes down, the disturbing trends that are impacting all of our lives go up. So if you were looking at a graph or something on a, uh, you know, like a, a research graph, that's what you would see. You'd see this line going down this way and this line going up that way. This huge change in religious belief and attendance has gone in tandem with a number of social trends, most of them negative. There has been a sharp rise in extreme loneliness, with huge numbers of young men now saying they have no friends. Among teenage girls in particular, there are rising levels of anxiety, self-harm, and eating disorders, not to mention gender dysphoria. We are by far and away absolutely, without, without, even, a, without even a close second, not even the same, same universe, the most medicated culture and the history of the world to deal with these issues right here. Perhaps most disturbingly, I'm sorry, excuse me, fertility has declined to European levels. People are unhappier. Perhaps most disturbingly, drug overdoses and suicides have risen so sharply that the United States has become only the second industrialized country not at war, to see life expectancy start to drop the first in the late, since the late 1960s. All of these things, a vast amount of social science literature shows, are influenced by religious belief and observance. Just this past year, 100,000 mostly young men died from um, the drug that uh, fentanyl overdoses. Thank you. So what I'm saying to you is that there are significant consequences to people that we don't even know when, as a church, we don't do what we're capable of doing.
There's a wonderful little text in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, love covers a multitude of sins. That when we love people, we rescue them from a lot of errant choices and decisions they might have made otherwise. And love is one of the fruits of the Spirit that we talked about last week. Because love is reflective of Jesus Christ. And what the world needs more than us is Jesus Christ in us. And that all has to do with the production of fruit that uh, that, um, Jesus is talking about in John 15, verses 1 through 8, verse 16. And so um, I'm going to begin with that text. If you want to kind of catch up with where we are in this series, I just would encourage you to go online and you can follow what we have online um, uh, and, uh, and know where we are and why we are here So I'm going to be spending time then on uh, God as the vine dresser that you read in John 1.1. And the vine dresser is God the Father who provides a clear sense of his authority and sovereignty over this world and that of the believer. Understand this, that in this very dramatic metaphor that Jesus gives, that the vine dresser is God the Father who provides a very clear sense of his authority and sovereignty over all of our lives, whether we recognize that, whether we submit to it or surrender to it or whatever, it doesn't matter. He is that. And, uh, and based on how we respond to that, we will be judged. Now, before I get to the text itself, I just want to remind you there are four primary nouns in this metaphor. There is the fruit that produces what the branch is. The branch is you and me. There is the branch and the branch produces what the vine is. I really, you know, the significance of this was lost on me at first. If I'm connected to the vine, as a branch, and as a branch, I produce fruit, the fruit I produce will be like the vine. So God chooses to use you and me to reproduce himself in the world in which we live. How many of you, I remember, no, let me just say this, I remember years ago when we were putting in the basketball uh, stanchions there that we wanted to paint the lines, you know, of a court, a basketball court. And it's kind of tricky, really, how you get those half circles and the distance and the feet and all that kind of stuff and how you're going to paint it. And there was a guy named... Chuck, that, who was a contractor, and he was at the time attending here, and I asked him if he would be willing to do that, and he said, well, I'll take a look at it. He says, um, but I just want you to know if I can't do it, I'm not doing it because I don't want to do any work that my name is associated with that is not good work. That's sort of stuck with me. 
How many of us, I wonder, when we are associated with a, a work that somebody asks us to do? I mean, did you, ever, did, you ever walk, did you ever walk up next to somebody and they're looking at something and they said, who in the world did that? That is awful. You know, well, it was so-and-so. You know, they meant well, but they just didn't pull it off. The God of the universe is willing to have his reputation ruined by partnering with us in the work that he has called us to. I mean, he has a lot of hope, don't you think? A lot of trust, at least with me. So you have the fruit, the branch, the vine that produces what the vine dresser desires. So the vine dresser is this gardener who organizes the vineyard and he plants the vines, how many vines, how, how far they're spaced apart, how he prunes them, how he cares for them, what's allowed in there. He is in complete and absolute control of the whole vineyard and what happens to each of those vines. And so when Jesus says that, um, that his father is the vine dresser, God is in absolute, complete control of what goes on in that vineyard in every branch on the vine and what it produces. So, let me then go to the text where Jesus says in verse 1, and I, I thought I had the, I was going to read it to you, but I don't know if I have it here. Yeah, I do. So, um, and if you want to turn to your Bibles, you can, but it's, bare, it, it's worth reading again, so I'll read it. Uh, John 15, verses 1 through 11, beginning with verse 16. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So we'll just stay with that for now. And I want to take you then to um, a text, um, and I, by moving things around, I got, I got a little bit lost here. I apologize. You know I don't normally do this, but let me get my glasses on. So there's this text in Ephesians 2.10, and if you have your Bibles, turn to that, because I think it's helpful as we um, consider... Uh, this particular text as we as we go forward. So, here we go. In uh, and so I'm I'm going to spend some time here just talking about some important texts that support these two verses that I just spoke on. My father is the vine dresser. So in Ephesians two ten, then we read this. For those of you who have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen. For we are his workmanship. It really, the, the overlay here is pretty remarkable. We are his workmanship. We are his branches. Created in Christ Jesus. You could put substitute the word abiding there. For good works. Fruit. Which God prepared beforehand in a sovereign, providential sort of way 
that we should walk in them, that we should produce fruit. This is Ephesians 2.10. This is the Apostle Paul writing about 40 years after Jesus already taught on I am the vine and you are the branches. For we are his workmanship. So the word workmanship, poyama, it just means that which has been made. We've been made. We are his workmanship. We've been made by God. And this is absolute. No one else made us. God made us, created in Christ Jesus, so that we have not only been made as we were before Christ, we are made through Christ into something different. We are a new creation, right? And that we've been created for good works. And that word good works means deeds, labor. So our primary Our primary purpose as we exist is to create good works, is to do good works in the name of Christ, through Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. Which God prepared for beforehand. So there are some works that you have already done. There are some good deeds that you've already done that God preordained that you would do. That he set you up in order to do that. Now, some of us do those works and some of us do not. And when we do those works, we alleviate suffering in the world. And when we don't do those works, we, we, uh, we accelerate suffering in the world. We intensify it. Because there are, so, and we've used this example before. How many of us here grew up where we only had one parent at home and the other parent was not there? And because we didn't have two parents, our lives were more difficult than what they should have been. Or maybe some of us had two parents at home, and the one parent was pretty decent, but the other parent was terrible. And we suffered some as a child because of how we were treated by that parent. So we violated the purpose for which God created us, to be to have children, to be parents, to be good parents, and to make our children better than us. Multiply that times a million of all the different examples that we could draw from about what our purpose is, what God intended us to be and to do, and that that was set in stone beforehand. But right now, I promise you, there are people either in your life now or you haven't even met them yet and you will have an opportunity to do something for them, to be something to them. And if you're attuned to the Holy Spirit, you will know that you should say something or do something. And when you do that, then you produce fruit. So, what, how are we to understand this text then for us? Well, number one, we are providentially salvaged and redesigned. That through Christ, you are salvaged. Have you ever been to a salvage yard or something like that before? Where something that is considered to be broken or trashed or whatever, somebody 
salvages it and they redesign, they repurpose, they fix it. We are providentially salvaged and redesigned by the vine dresser to do his will and work. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you read Ephesians chapter 2, now, Ephesians 2.10 2, is one of those passages where, like, it's easy to, like, maybe make, make it a, 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 you know, a special verse where you highlight it in your Bible. Maybe you'll print it up or something like that and put it on your desk or whatever. It's just one of those great texts that you can remember that's very significant, that God has a purpose for our life, that he prepared the purpose beforehand, that he loves us so much, he wants to use us, he wants to partner with us. All of that is wonderful. But do you know what Ephesians 2.1 says? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what it says. You were dead. You were useless. You were not helpful. You were unredeemable. There was nothing about you that was worth having. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So when you take Ephesians 2, 1, and then you go to Ephesians 2, 10... What a remarkable trans, transition has taken place, right? You were worthless to now you are partnering with the God of the universe. And he has set you up to do magnificent things. So between Ephesians 2.1 and 2.10, he, he goes on to talk about the great work in our Christ. But thanks be to God. Right? So that's the whole of the context. You have been salvaged from a useless thing for the purpose of being a productive thing for God. Paul says in the book of Colossians, he says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. <laughs> so... You, we weren't only dead, but we were destined for. We had one foot in the domain of darkness. Now, anybody care to guess what the domain of darkness is? That apart from Christ, we were all on the fast path to hell. I mean, that's what it is. But he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, Paul says, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Our status has been remarkably changed. Remarkably. So we've been salvaged. But what happens when, as a salvaged vessel, we don't produce fruit? Well, Jesus addresses this as well. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, this is a very interesting passage. Do you know how much work it goes into producing salt? You have to find where the salt is. It's usually in a salt mine. Then you have to mine for it, which is what's considered at the time to be one of the most dangerous 
kinds of occupations. Only slaves really did mining. And the most worthless slaves were the ones who did the mining. So you extracted the salt and it all had to be ground and chopped up so that it could be used. And then he offers this almost like uh, unthinkable thing like, hey, what happens if after you've produced this salt, it loses its saltiness? I mean, what a deep sense of betrayal and frustration that would be. I mean, is it even possible? And then he goes on to say, but if it does, it's worthless. Raka, worthless. Did you know that in the Bible, in the Greek, that, it, that one of the great prohibitions in the New Testament was to call somebody worthless, a fool, which is what worthless means, a fool? So it's a pretty strong word, fool, worthlessness. So if it loses its saltiness, if it doesn't do, if it doesn't flavor, and if it doesn't preserve, if salt doesn't flavor and it doesn't preserve, would anybody here go out and take gravel off the street and throw it on their food? No. be ridiculous. But if salt doesn't flavor or preserve then it's just as good as the gravel that you would take off the street. And so he says the salt is worthless, and so you throw it out for to be trampled on. Now, this, I just love you know, how Jesus does these things. You know that in, in Jewish culture, among the most filthy things in the world is a person's foot. So... If you are salt that's lost its saltiness and you are thrown out on the, on the ground and people walk across you with their feet, it's abject humiliation. It's the worst thing possible. I mean, in Palestine, you can't even take your shoe off and hit somebody with it. It's the worst of offenses. Do you remember when Saddam Hussein was deposed and people were knocking over his statue and they were taking their sandals off and hitting his statue with their sandals? That's what they were saying. It's the worst possible offense. So if we are salt, if we have been rescued from this mine and we've been processed and made into something that can actually flavor and produce and and uh, preserve and then if we don't perform in that way we don't actually do those things then we go from something that has been highly prized to something that is utterly and completely humiliated that's what jesus is saying here and that's why you know it's so important for all of us to take the privilege the wonderful privilege that God gives to us to partner with him. In a much less significant and dramatic way, you know, we've all been, like when we were in high school or middle school, we've all wanted to be on a certain team with certain people and to be included with them would have been just the greatest thing. 
And we would swell with pride if we were on that person's team or those people's teams. And so the God of the universe chooses to include us on his team. And that's what he's saying. So here's a question I have for you. How does it make you feel that all the po- that the all-powerful and loving and holy and, so- and sovereign God of the entire universe salvaged you, crafted you, and partners with you for his ultimate purpose and plan? How does it make you feel? Humbled? Humbled? Yeah, thankful, valuable, and in the world where we can devalue people so easily, don't you think that's just really meaningful? Yeah. You know, I can just remember as a teenage, a young teenager boy uh, in middle school and high school and, 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 and growing up in the, in the challenging circumstances I had that that on, almost on a regular, almost on a daily basis was told by one of my parents that my life would never amount to anything. And how the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, no, that's just not true. I, I can remember my father telling me I was too stupid to go to college. And I can remember that when he said that to me, I'm, I'm, as sure as I'm standing, I'm telling you that this is true. The Holy Spirit said to me, that is not true. That is not true. My plans and purpose for you are far greater than what you think. And so that's what's given my life meaning and purpose. Knowing that God has a plan for my life and that he chooses to include me in that. So... Uh, whatever you think about yourself, know that if you are a believer and if you embrace, submit, and surrender to God's plan for your life, that, that you are in the highest of places and you have the deepest of meanings for your life. So the other question I have for you is this. What have you specifically identified to be your particular kind of workmanship? I mean, how have you been crafted? What talents, what abilities, what gifts do you have? What resources are at your disposal? And how do you know God wants you to use those? in this world, in this church. Because remember, God arranged that, that no one is here by accident. The country you were born in, the parents that you had, the community that you live in, the work uh, where you were, uh, even this morning being here this morning, if you believe that God is in control and you are living in obedience to him right now, if you believe that, then your being here is, is not an, an accident. 
and that maybe the person that you speak to today, the things that you hear, all that is just a part of God's plan in terms of what he wants to happen in your life so that you are strengthened and empowered, informed, so that when you leave here, you have something more so that you can produce fruit. But what do you know about yourself in terms of your workmanship? Like when I'm with some of you guys, especially the, the guys who are really skilled in the, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the, the trade kind of things, I'm an idiot, okay? I'm a moron when it comes to that kind of stuff, right? But when I'm with them, they're geniuses, or they seem like it. And they've enriched my life because of what they bring to the table and how they've helped me in that way. So it's very clear to them what it is that they can do and what it is that they can offer. Which, and, and guess what? It, it took me almost 50 years to figure out that I am primarily a teacher by nature. I mean, I don't know why. I mean, I guess I'm dense, but I, I don't know why I didn't figure it out beforehand. But I know now. Number two, God has providentially marked out our path in life. This is what Hebrew says. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... The author of Hebrews says, because remember, he just talked about Hebrews chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 11 is the, the chapter of faith because of who? What ha- who? Who do they recount in, in Hebrews chapter 11? All the great champions of the faith, right? And how they served faithfully. Right. And so now that he's finished Hebrews 11 in that way, he goes on to say in Hebrews 12, Therefore, I just told you about all these great champions of the faith. Therefore, we are, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. In other words, be pruned. Remember, that's what the vine dresser does, right? He prunes so that we produce still more fruit. That's what he says in John. Let also, let's also, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Does your sin cling closely to you sometimes? Does to me. It's wrapped around me like a cheap suit sometimes. It's hard to give up. And so God is very faithful and he wants to take that sin from me. He wants to prune me because that sin is getting in the way of my ability to produce still more fruit. So again, and you know, and sometimes it, it, it comes to us in, in weird ways that we wouldn't uh, always see. So it took me a large part, a fairly significant part of my adult life, I would say at least 10 or 15 years, where I had to overcome this idea of like, I didn't have much to offer. And so because I didn't believe I had much to offer, I didn't offer much. So, And then the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I had to lay aside my, that thing that clung to me. It weighted me down. So that's 
one of those kinds of things. But some of us here, and if you're human, I'm sure this is true of almost every us, uh, we, we, uh, we, we have some sin or sins in our lives that just cling to us that are hard for us to give up. Maybe it's anger, maybe it's judgmentalness, uh, maybe it's lust, whatever it is. But it compromises our life. And because we have those kinds of sin in our lives, we organize a lot of our sin, a lot of our lives around that sin or sins. So we spend so much time organizing around, compensating for those sins, it takes time away that we could produce still more fruit. Does this make sense to you? And the sin which clings so closely, let us run with endurance. Run hard, run long. Run with endurance the race that is set marked out. So, you know, when you run a race, normally there's a starting line and there's a finish line. And it's kind of marked out where you're supposed to go. And this is true for if you're running uh, sprints or if you're running distance. The race is marked out. You have to stay within these lines. You have to run from point A to point B. And you have to run with endurance. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, marked out by the vine dresser, looking to Jesus, abiding in him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, so that we can produce fruit. So, when Jesus gave you life, The race was marked out for you. Now, it's not a fatalism kind of thing. It's not like you have no choice. I mean, if we all run the race that's marked out for us, the world becomes inexorably a different place. We feed off of him and we feed off of each other. Reminds me of the text from James chapter 1. That's the wrong reference down there below it. But James chapter 1 verses uh, 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, when you have these trials and you are being pruned. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, your ability to abide and stay in Christ. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that is, the production of fruit, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, the vine dresser, as it says in 1 John, verse 2, the vine dresser prunes the vines so that they might produce more fruit. And he does that... um, He does that through primarily trials and tests and temptations. Now, some of us, for some of us, this is lost on us. Shouldn't be, but it is. Um, Both the for the unbeliever and the believer, I think this proverb applies. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, is the way to death. So some of us really 
are in denial about our relationship with God or about God or what he calls us to or what is commanded of us or how we need to submit or what we need to surrender or any of those kinds of things. In that way, if we're not careful, as we run our race or whatever race that is, we have to come to terms with whether or not we're thinking rightly about all of that. So later on, and again, I'm not going to get to everything I have here today. We have to, we need to want to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. But do you ever wake up in the morning and ask yourself the question, "Lord, what do you have for me today? What will be my opportunities?" How is it that I really can run hard and run long for you today? When you wake up in the morning and you know that there's a certain part of that day that's just going to be really challenging, whether it's a person or an activity or an event, and it's even going to be burdensome, do you think there's a difference when we have a difference in the outcome when our attitude is from, like, I, want, I don't want to do this, I want to avoid this, too, God, what, in what place are you here and what do you have for me in this thing? Like if you're going in to, to get your uh, job evaluation, you know, your annual review. And they sit down, you know that part of it's, part of it's not going to be as good. How can that be used? When... When you have a difficult family member, and maybe, you're, maybe you don't have those in your life, but I do, what's the opportunity there? Is it just really an opportunity to disparage them in your mind, talk about them to another person? Or is it a real opportunity for you to be tested Is that a trial that we need to embrace? I'm going to speak more about that later on, the last part of this uh, segment here, probably next week. But the truth of the matter is, is that every day we run a certain distance of this race marked out for us. Every day the road's a little different. The scenery is going to change. The wind is uh, going to be at our back or to our front or from the side. Someone's going to be running beside us. Sometimes people aren't running beside us. I mean, it's all changed. It's all different. But every day there is a race that is marked out for you. And we have an opportunity to embrace that. And as we do, we produce fruit. And... And it's not just that. It's that if you're a believer, if you know and love Jesus, he's just not going to submit us to something that we can't endure on the one hand. And he's not going to submit us to something that we don't have a purpose for on the other hand. I've known a number of people over the course of my life who have suffered greatly. And they were believers. 
And many of them went through horrible things. I mean, horrible. But when they came out the other side, these people of faith who deserve to be in Hebrews chapter 11 would say, you know, what I went through was truly awful. But when I see how God has brought me through that, when I consider all the ways in which I could use that to help other people, I would not go back and change anything. Whatever trial or test or temptation God gave to me or allowed to happen, um, under his, his rulership, his sovereignty, I did the best I could to embrace it because I know that it can be used in a way to advance him, his kingdom, to help others to produce fruit. Those are my words, but that's what they meant. So, as we conclude this section then, because next week I'm going to talk about the body of Christ from 1 Corinthians 12, and then I'm going to talk about this James passage a little bit more, um, just to finish this about how God is sovereign in our lives and how he prunes us, how he has arranged our lives and how he prunes our lives. We're going to finish that up next week. But I want us to consider very carefully what it means for the God of the universe to call you, to have a plan for you, to mark out your life, to give you tools and resources and experiences because you have a great work and you are his workmanship and he loves you. And through you, he's willing to risk his reputation in this world. Pretty amazing.